let me just pray as we begin, and then we'll jump in here. Father, I do give you today, and acknowledge again how much we need you, and I, and I recognize that there's lots of emotions going on, and there's things in our world that's going on where we need to bow before you, and you need to meet us. So Lord, um, walk ahead of us, and we invite your spirit to, to speak to us, to give us grace, to give us comfort. But Lord, even as we come to a hard passage today, would you, um, would you be in control? Would you work? Would your spirit nudge us to where we need to go even in this area? So we acknowledge again how much uh, you mean to us. And I give you thanks for being our God and for being a good father who loves us and who gave his son to us. So I give you thanks for today. These things we pray in your name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. We're continuing in this series, Rooted in Christ. And uh, the idea there that we want our spiritual roots to go deep. And we're using kind of that tree analogy, but I ended up reading an article from a professor of horticulture at Cornell University, and she starts her class like this. She, she brings them together, and she says this, draw a picture of a tree. And inevitably, you know, what they draw is branches, leaves, and they'll even put birds in the tree in that picture. But then she says this, quote, what is blatantly absent from almost all the tree portraits are the life-supporting root systems. And she went out on the article to describe even more the, the, the need for healthy roots and even talking about the soil that's needed to sustain a tree and the roots of a tree. And, and with that, I want to make a statement about our text today and this idea of doctrine, which is just the understanding of Scripture. Here's what I, I said. Poor doctrine or poor understanding of it is the unfertile soil that leads to an undernourished spiritual root system. See, if we don't understand the Scriptures rightly, it leaves our spiritual health compromised. Now, you notice the title of the series today. I'll put a picture in again on the screen. A little bit weird. Countercultural sin. How's that for a title? Uh, but today is a doctrine that is counter to what the culture believes about it. And matter of fact, I would say many people attend churches really don't understand it as well. But I want to read the text to begin Ephesians chapter three or verse chapter two, verse one. And when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Now, Paul just got done praying for them, wanting for their spiritual roots to go deeper in a relationship with him. But Paul knew that there's an issue that is so important for them to grasp, and it's the issue and the understanding of sin. Now, I've taught about this before, and, and here's where it, it's a bit awkward because the idea of sin really also overlaps with a culture of political correctness. 
And I, I, you know, that term political correctness, really it's worse than ever for today. And even the idea of tolerance means that you have to agree and support and encourage another position even though they may be wrong. And it's awkward, obviously, to do that, and, 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 and even it's even taken a step farther. You think of even, I think, the last year, the idea of cancel culture. If somebody doesn't agree with you, they, they want to attack you and kind of cancel out your voice and punish you as a result of that. And understand as we dig into this text, I, there would, might be people that would listen to it and want to cancel out what I, I actually have to say today. But I want to begin like this. I want to put a, a picture of a man up on the screen. It's a fictitious man. His name is Joe Blow. He's getting ready for the day, shaving his beard. But to explain Joe, he's not an atheist, he's, but he's never embraced religion. Uh, occasionally he'll go to church, maybe at Christmas time. He really has never read the Bible. You know, he figured out John 3, 16. Oh, that's from the Bible when they see it at a baseball game. But when Joe begins to spruce himself up in the morning in front of a mirror, does he understand three important things about himself? Let me put those on the screen. That he is spiritually dead because of sin. That he is actually following Satan, the prince of the power of the air. That he is in a club called the Sons of Disobedience. That he is by human nature children of wrath. Do you see why this passage is offensive today. What does Joe believe then? See, he doesn't understand those four points, but let me show you and give you three things that Joe assumes as he looks into the mirror. And by the way, many church attenders believe these same three things. Now, so realize the issue that I'm talking about isn't a, a world versus the church or, or who God is. It's just, it's, it's about life itself. The first one, though, that Joe assumes is, is this. Number one, at the core, he is basically good. You know, when my son came out of the womb, my first child, I didn't respond and hold him and say this. Here is a little Satan follower. I didn't do that. You know what we tend to believe? We hold that child and we look at him and go, here's a child like it's a blank canvas, an art, an art canvas. And if we're parents, if we just draw the right things on that canvas, greatness, goodness, then we believe that he will turn out or she will turn out right and as long as we don't draw the wrong things on the canvas. And in order so we don't do that, we kind of go online, we'll read some stuff about parenting, and we believe this, if I just do this, draw the right things, have the right environment, then I'll have good kids. They won't be screwed up. See, Joe believes deeply for children, just have the right environment, and poof, you can get a good kid. He, and I think we, also, see, we, we kind of believe that we can control their destiny, even in the area of health. You realize that? Ever watched a family with the first kid? 
I, I think of my daughter, you know, I remember what we did it was so long ago, but first child, no sugar, no chemicals, no ice cream for a little kid. You go, what's the deal with that? And, but no bad food. Why? Because we believe that if they can just eat the right stuff, they're going to turn out to be a healthy, happy kid, you know, and a well-rounded, adjusted child. So our first birthday, what do we do? We give them a bran muffin pretending it's a cupcake, a piece of cake, and we put a candle on it. Okay, but by the third or fourth child, you know, watching my daughter, we got pictures on her, she was one a while back, and here was the fourth child, real chocolate cupcakes all over their, her hair, okay? Do you understand what the, the challenges in a family, and then the third and fourth kid, you're giving them Fruit Loops for breakfast, and so that's how we go. But the culture believes that you can put in a formula, and if we can just keep people from the wrong environment, have the right education, the right setting, poof, they're going to be good. They're going to be good to go. When they become teens, and they're going to be well-adjusted adults into adulthood. Now, here's, I got to hear, say this. To some degree, there is some elements of truth to that. But, 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 they may be well-adjusted, but according to whose standards, whose values, are they the culture's values of well-adjusted, or are they well-adjusted according to what God would define as well-adjusted? See, that's the issue here for us. See, to some degree, we really don't catch that at times we're dealing with the world's standards and what they would say is well-adjusted. But here's the deal. The idea that our kids are a blank canvas is blatantly false. It's false. And that's what most people like Joe believe. But let me give you a second one that plays into it as well. Here's another belief and assumption that he would have. That the path number two to heaven is found in trying to be genuinely good. So the formula, try hard, be a good moral person, and be sincere in it. You deserve heaven. Now, I understand this. God made us, all of us, with an understanding of right and wrong. And when we do right... We know it feels good, doesn't it? It feels really good. When we help someone out, it feels good. And because of that, there's the assumption that humanity believes that as we do good things, we should be rewarded. Rewarded. So people then assume that being genuinely good is the path to heaven. Trying to be sincerely good, having people view you as good, and that feels good, by the way. 
So Job Lowe, he volunteers at the food bank, and he feels good. Therefore, heaven is in my destiny. But folks, it's interesting how we as even followers of Christ that claim to be followers of Christ believe some of that stuff as well. Have you ever done, been to a funeral? And over the years, I've done a number of funerals. And I can't remember one funeral where people would stand up and say, Uncle Charlie that just died here, he deserves hell. I've never heard that at a funeral. You know what the phrasing is? They're at a better place. But what if somebody would stand up and go, no, they're not. First of all, that's not politically correct, okay? It's probably not very kind either in that setting. But see, it goes like this. Uncle Charlie, he had some flaws, sure, but he tried really hard. He did the best he could do. He was a decent, moral man. See, this plays into number three of Joe's belief. Number three is this. God evaluates on a scale. And Joe, Joe Blow here, believes that they personally are weighted in the right direction. See, God looks at the sum of your life. And if you've done enough good things, you deserve heaven. If you've done too many bad things, yeah, those people over there deserve hell. But here's the deal. How many people actually believe they've done so much bad that they don't deserve heaven? I don't know if I've ever met one that has said that. They view that God is going to give them a passing mark. Let me jump into the text today. Hard stuff here. Look at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Notice you were, were, now you're not. So he's speaking again to the believers. They are rooted in Christ. But here he talks about two bad things. He uses the word sins and he uses the word trespasses. The word sin here is technically a shooting word. Meaning that you, you shoot at something and you miss. If you've grown up in the church, you've maybe heard this. You miss the mark. That's one of the definitions of sin. Now, here's the deal. Rarely do they explain what the mark is. Now, some say it is this, the mark of perfect righteousness. And I would agree somewhat on that, that it's that. But I also think it's more than that. I think it's also this. What did God intend for us as he created us in his image. And it's this, that we would have a love relationship and be dependent on him. And when sin came, we missed the mark and we claimed independence rather than living with him in relationship. But Paul uses as well this idea of trespasses. And it means this, to slip or to fall. It's, it's used in, for a man losing his way, you know, wandering onto land that's not yours. You're off the path. You're taking a wrong turn. That's that word trespass. Now, if you were to summarize and kind of bunch those two words together and go, what are the consequences of those things? I'll put a statement on the screen. It's this. Sin killed the heart and the will to love and follow God. 
Romans says this, the wages of sin is death. It killed the desire to walk toward God, to follow God. It started with Adam and Eve in the garden, though. Understand, they gave into a temptation that you can be, Satan came, you can be like God, and they gave into it. What was it that you can be like God? It's this, you get the right to determine what is good and what is evil. That what, that's what it means to be like God. They claim the right to decide what is okay and what is not okay. And with that, they demanded then to God the right to choose on their own. And I want to push even one step farther. It's this. When, the, when pleasures came in their life, they also claimed the right like we do. Which pleasures are good and which pleasures are not good? See, even in the area of pleasure, we claim the right of what to decide what it is. Well, let me keep going. Look at verse 2. In which you once walked. Again, you were there once. Not now. But look at this. You were before following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience. See, Joe is following the course of the world. What is that? It's this. The world, when they claim the right to decide what is good, what is not good, what is evil, in that they then create values and standards which they determine. So it's the values. The course of the world is the values of what the world says is important and right. For example, the issue of love. When it fits with the world's definition of I need pleasure in love and love is about the me, you understand you get the right to decide about any kind of love then. And for example, in sexual love, yeah, it's okay for me and it is good. And God comes along and says, listen, there's a different standard that I have about love. And one of those standards is this, love your enemies love your enemies. And the world says, no, 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 that's not love. You're supposed to hate your enemies. That's the right thing to do. Matter of fact, if, if you push it farther and you ask the question, how do you determine, what's the values you use to determine the meaning of your life? What is the meaning of your life? The world says this, it's all centered about what I feel, what I like. It's about me that determines meaning. What is it for a follower of Christ? A biblical understanding of meaning. It's this. For me to live as Christ. My life is to be about the kingdom. My life is to be about serving. Giving my life away is where meaning is found in the scriptures when it comes to a follower of Christ. Rather than all about me. You see, two contrary values, but people look at the values of the world and we tend to oftentimes embrace them even within the church as well. Are you catching the depth of Paul's writing here for mankind? In that if they don't know Christ, it's hard. But the next phrase 
following the prince of the air. Who's that? It's Satan. It's Satan. You know, the ancient world believed in the demonic world much stronger than we do today. Matter of fact, they thought that the air was filled with the demonic realm, crowded with demons. See, Paul understood something about the demon, demonic world. The demons generate evil. That's their goal. They want to frustrate the purposes of God. And they want to ruin the hearts of people. They want to keep people from responding to Christ. What do they do? They lie. And they use people and systems to build lies and they then push that into the culture and people don't know that they're believing the lies that have been generated by Satan himself. Now, when it says that basically they're under demonic control, here's the deal. If they're possessed, and that word is a real understanding that I've seen people being possessed by the demonic realm. And when that happens, they're actively antagonistic against God. They want nothing to do with it. But Joe Blow, who may not be possessed, and understand he's probably not, understand, is he still under the influence of the demonic realm? Yes, he is because of the lies that he has believed that have been generated from that area. Then we come to this issue, sons of disobedience. Joe is in a club called the Sons of Disobedience. What is it? It's naturally ignoring what God said is true, what's right, what God says is wrong. See, they've decided what they get the right to define what's good, and that is normal thinking for them. And the values and standards of the world recognize are fluid as well. They can change based on the culture. When you get into the scriptures, you go, no. These values are consistent as well. You know, the scripture speaks of sexual perversions, which is disobedient toward God. And so I think the question, why are we surprised when the culture around us embraces what God says is wrong? We should not be surprised. They decided it's good, it's just love. That's normal thinking for Joe. See, it's fluid though, and you get the right to decide. Let me keep going. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You once again, you were there, it reminds them of that, but the passions of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, it is the old way of life, growing up where it's all about me and I get the right to decide what is attractive, what is desirable, what is pleasurable. It's the understanding that Paul says, even if we are in Christ, we still battle even the flesh. But what are they? We tend to think when we hear that in the church, a lot of people go, well, that's the sexual stuff. And I go, it's way more than that. Let me put a passage, the ERV version on the screen. Look at how it reads here. The wrong things of the sinful self, literally there, the flesh, okay? Does are clear. It's what's clear. Committing sexual sin, yes. 
being morally bad, doing all kinds of shameful things, worshiping false gods, taking part in witchcraft, hating people, causing trouble, being jealous, angry, selfish, causing people to argue and divide into separate groups, being filled with envy, getting drunk, having wild parties, doing other things like this. How's that for a list of the flesh? Starting with sexual sin and encompassing almost every other sin out there. It is the flesh is a part of our human nature when we're born. And when we give in to the flesh, sin takes a foothold in our hearts. Now the flesh and how it's worked out, we got to understand something. It will vary from person to person. For one man, the weakness might be the body and the sexual area, and he'll move toward sexual sin. For another person, it might be pride. And even all, having all of the, your spiritual facts together, and we become proud. That can be the flesh. Another, it might be possessions. Having the stuff is a part of it, and i got to have it. The stuff, i got to have all of that stuff. That can be the flesh. It might be temper. It, it might be another person's wanting control as well. That's the flesh. See, without Christ, the desire self gives way, and we define those things as normal in this world. And it's okay. You know, I desire money. That's okay. It's... When it becomes an obsession, the flesh has taken over. We need Christ. But let me give you an application reminder here. The reminder is this. When you come to faith, when you put your faith in Christ, the battle with the flesh begins. Do you know that? See, it's, it's an area of the flesh that we don't, we don't teach well on. Look at Galatians 5.17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. That's within us. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. See, even being in Christ with the Holy Spirit, the flesh still exists. It's still in our lives. And frankly, it's this. It still deserves the wrath of God. But thanks be to God. If you have a faith, thanks be to God who is rich in mercy and who is one and taking care of our flesh. See, the truth is that in the sight of God, no man ever deserves anything other than condemnation. Then you come to that phrase, the children of wrath. See, Joe without Christ sits under the wrath of God just because he is who he is and his sin in all different kinds of ways. And it's only through the love of the Father through Christ that man can be forgiven and move out away from the wrath of God and that condemnation. 
Now, how do you apply a passage like this? I, you know, originally I was thinking of taking the whole next section and applying it, and we'll get there next week and come back there. But how do you apply this issue of, of sin and the depth of all what it is? Well, the first one, I want to give you four here this morning. And the first one really is in light of our political world. I want to point something out. Letter A, realize this. That the government, the laws, okay, will never create righteousness within the hearts of people. Having the right rules never creates righteousness. You know, I, I, I hear this often, is that we blame Again, the culture for the downfall of our Christian nation. But understand this, the theology of verses 1 through 3 says this, they were born that way. If we expect them to be righteous, that's an illegitimate expectation. Now, some of you won't like this. It's the fact this, there technically has been no nation that's ever been a Christian nation you know that? Why? It's because of the theology of verses 1 through 3. You have groups of people, everyone that was born starts out away from God. Now, here's the deal. Some nations have better morality than others. That's true. Some line up better with God. And at certain eras, that's true. When, when we were founded... There was more people believed in what's called transcendent truth, that God is the giver of what and determines what's right and wrong. That's very true back at the, when the founding fathers. And I suspect even back then, I was a history major, but in, in college, and I think this, is that there was just a far greater percentage of people that were in Christ that were making the rules at the time the, nations were de, the nation was developed. It created a good moral structure. But did it make it a Christian nation? I go, I don't think so. Because the nation was still filled with people. I'll put up three things that it was still filled with. There were people who were following Satan. The prince of the power of the air. There were men and women in the club called the sons and daughters of disobedience. There are many people that were by nature, actually all of them, I should have said all, by children of wrath. This is true of every nation on this, in this world. Here's the deal. If you look at the facts, folks, there's a shrinking percentage of people who have a real faith in the United States. It's growing less and less. The club called the Sons and Daughters of Disobedience is growing in the percentage of the country. Therefore, they have a bigger voting block. And people in control who have the more votes win the morality battle. And yes, many people voting, I, I, I think many people that vote don't have an understanding. There's always a battle of, of values when elections come along. I, I totally agree with that. But who's ever in control defines the values that has always been the case through history for every nation. Even go back to the kings of Israel. You had a bad king, it flowed down the values into the people. 
You have a good king. It flowed down into the nation who's in control oftentimes shapes the values of a group of people. Let me give you another one, though, because of that. Letter B, kind of the so what. If, you want, if we want a Christian or a change of nation, here's the deal. It starts with changing the hearts of people through discipleship and the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the real issue for me is that the church has struggled for generations to make disciples and to use the gospel as the center of their lives. It's the gospel and Jesus that changes hearts. And if we think we can get back to some moral nation through politics and not through the gospel and the church becoming a real light in the world, I think we're kidding ourselves. And go to Barna Research. People who claim Jesus are less Jesus-centered than ever before. The great commandment, we dabble in it. People who claim a faith, dabble in that. The great commission to make disciples has been ignored by generations in the church. See, even when Christians, what they believe about church is making an impact in our country. For a lot of people of faith, that claim a faith, they say this, church is just optional. And you go, that's not biblical. Or they come along and say, well, it's a good idea if I create margin in our life. I go, it's not good enough. See, that's the challenge for us. If we want to change our culture, we got to change the hearts of people. And it starts more, most often with the church changing their heart, our hearts as well. But here's why I want to go down another path and apply this to parents and grandparents. If you're a grandparent, let her see. Recognize this, biblical parenting is as much about the flesh as it is keeping your child from the influences of the world. See, there's a temptation out in the world. I know it. It's probably stronger than ever. But if one believes that it's primarily the world that influences the canvas of our kids, you're ignoring the reality of verses 1 through 3. My children were born alienated from God. There was no blank canvas. No one taught my kids to be bad or evil. Matter of fact, we don't understand that even this idea of evil, worse than bad, there are seeds there within our children that can be birthed and grown if they don't begin to meet Jesus. And understand what God wants. See, no matter how much we think we can protect our kids, we have issues verses 1 through 3 with our children. That's why we've got to get serious about discipleship. We've got to be teaching our kids toward the heart, not just the will, not just the mind. It's why as adults we need to be pressing toward Christ a deeper relationship with him. That's what Paul prayed for last week. And then we have to allow the spirit in our lives to begin to battle this thing called the flesh. 
You know, years ago, there was a popular parenting program. It actually tried to discipline the flesh out of the kids. And it, basically, it was, most of it was just behavioral modification. But if the church is going to truly impact our world, which we are called to do, by the way, and if we want our kids and young adults to move toward Jesus, we've got to figure some things out. And I think letter D is at the heart of it. Here's what I said. We must be stopping. We look in the mirror and discern what is it that we individually, what, is it, what do we really worship? What do we really love the most? I want to show you a video it fits parenting, grandparenting, and beyond, okay? It's Francis Chan, and he was asked the question, if you could challenge the Western church and the mindset on one area, what would it be? What would he say? And there's a video. Let's play that. Could you give a challenge to the Western church and the Western yeah. world? Okay. And then anything else that's burning in your heart. Okay. Okay. I'm pretty excited when I see the faith of some of the young people today that are just saying, God, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. There wasn't a lot of that when I grew up. Um, but what happened with those who did have that spark and that excitement, I saw how the church almost squashed them. Um, and I'm praying for this next generation, for the young people who are just saying, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything. And they're doing it. They're going overseas or they're, you know, right where they're at in the inner cities or in their own suburbs, just going, you know, I'm going to be radical. I'm going to follow Jesus completely. I want it all. I'm, I'm not about the games and, and about, okay, entertain me to death in, in the church. I want to follow Jesus and I want to experience him. And I guess my challenge to the church is, is for those that are maybe my age or those who uh, um, even further along, it's like, would you set the example for the young people? Because what happened um, in my generation when we were younger, uh, there were those who were radical, but there weren't people, once they got married, everything changed. Once they had kids, everything changed. And I'm just praying, oh God, could I be an example of someone who's married and has kids and is still thinking kingdom first? Like saying, you know, like 1 Corinthians 7, those who are married should live as though they're not. Uh, there's a sense in which this mission is bigger and can we still live and take risks and still surrender our lives and, and say, you know what, it's me, my wife, my family, I wanna demonstrate to them, you know what, look, when we follow Christ, yeah, that was a little scary. Yeah, that might have been a little dangerous. Yeah, that was not the, you know, logical move to make. But God did call us that direction. And let's head that way. And I want my kids to experience what it, what it looks like when we live by faith. But not only that, I want to be an example to the young people to say, you know what? Your, your mission with the Lord doesn't end when you get married and suddenly, oh, well, you're dating, so focus on each other. And, oh, it's your first year of marriage. You know, just focus on each other. And, oh, you just had a kid. You know what? Then then take time for that, that little kid and until he goes to school. Then you'll be free. But then once they're in school, it's like, oh, they're teenagers now. Just collect that family together and worry about yourselves. But then you're, you're teaching them this 
mentality, again, is not about going out in the harvest and being a worker. It's about let's protect our family now. Now let's keep us safe. Let's find some gated community and, you know, and keep them all in our house away from all the bad people. And that's, <laughs> there's no excuse for that. That is not what, you, you can't find that in this book. It's about living for him and you're missing out. Not only are you missing out on life, but your children are missing out on life when you do that. That's why so many of the kids, when they turn 18, they just ditch God altogether because they didn't see anything real in your life. They, they didn't see that adventure, and, and you didn't put yourself in positions where God had to come through, and then he comes through, and your whole family was going, wow, that was amazing. I am never going to leave that God. No, you just created a little bubble for yourself where how was God even going to operate in, in that? And, I don't know. I, I don't want to be negative. I don't want to sound negative. I'm just, I just get sad because I go, not only are you missing out on life, but we are turning away our children by the droves because our lives are not the adventure that they see in Scripture, and they are not experiencing the Holy Spirit. They're experiencing like a Christian version of the American dream that's watered down, and, and we just make excuses for really idolizing our families um, rather than really putting Christ in the mission first. See, what do we value? What do we worship the most? Is it our kids, our grandkids, our retirement account, the American dream, which technically is the world's value of a dream? It's not Christ's dream for us. See, parents, our children must see us following Christ radically. Working for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. See, to have our kids passionate toward Christ and modeling that passion is the name of the game for children and grandparents for your grandchildren. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. I, I think Chan is spot on. We want the American dream and, and then put a stamp of Christianity on it. And, and so we want nice Christian kids who follow our dreams. Just have a nice Christian family. Ignore the world of discipleship. See, what we aim for dictates what life is all about and where we find meaning. Have you ever considered what it means to look at your life in the mirror and stir it for the kingdom of God? Where meaning is found in a different place. It's found in Christ and the kingdom of heaven. See, what are we really worshiping? The, the world around us, when it talks about being different, do, do we want the world to look, us and look at us and go, that guy follows Jesus. That family follows Jesus no matter what. And they can't deny it. We need to worship. We need to sing. As we sing here, would you just really consider what are you loving the most is it Christ is it moving toward him 
or have you caught in the values of the world of what the world is telling you you should want let's stand let's sing